Welcome to Redeemer Church. Psalm 117 says, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all you people of earth, for his unfailing love for us is powerful. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Praise the Lord. Um, We're starting a new teaching series today um, called The Power of Hope, and through this series we're going to be diving into the rich history and context that surrounds um, Jeremiah 29, and one of the most well-known passages um, in the Bible today. And we're going to be laying the foundation for this series by addressing a a very simple and yet complicated, complex question um, by asking, what do you do when you don't like the circumstances of your life? And more importantly, what do you do if you know that those circumstances aren't going to change? I invite you to open your hearts and minds um, this morning for a moment of prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, you have entrusted us with the message of your power and grace, justice and love. Provide for us today, we pray, in your guidance that we may be teachers and learners together, believing today that you are here among us. We would pray especially for those who serve in all of our Christian education ministries across all of our campuses. May they serve you with joy joy as they nurture the spiritual growth of all those who are entrusted to their care. Bless the dedication of each servant that they might be channels of your grace and love to the hearts and minds of those they serve. We pray as well for those who have been harmed this week and those who are trying to put their lives back together. May this experience turn many hearts towards the one who has the power to save and to heal and use us to bring hope and assistance into their lives. Bless now this worship and our time together and this service. May all that we do and say bring honor and glory to the name of Christ, Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. So what do you do when you don't like the circumstances in your life? And it doesn't look like those circumstances are going to change anytime soon. Rhetorical question, you don't have to answer. When that question was asked of a group of adults, a man that was at the table looked up and said, I hope someone can give me some help because... I've been struggling with that question and wrestling it for, with it for over 30 years. The ironic thing is that this man gave off all of, the, all of the signs of being outwardly successful and reasonably happy with his life. He was respected by his peers and highly regarded by all who knew him. And in the old-fashioned sense of the word, he, is, he, was, he was a very good man. He was a very good man. But he later confided in the group that for 30 years, he wondered if he made the right career choice. You see, when he was younger, and he was younger, he, um, he thought that, he, he seriously thought about entering into the ministry. And in some degree, that thought never left his mind. And now, he wonders, did I somehow make a mistake all those years ago? Did I miss God's purpose for my life? Now, my mind, my mind wanders into several conversations I've had with folks um, who are dealing with a variety of personal um, relational issues, personal and relational issues, Um, people who are single and wanted to be married, but they they haven't found the right person, maybe, or or people who have experienced divorce, wanted or unwanted, and now feel themselves in a world that seems to be set up for families and not singles. 
or people who would like to have children but for some reason can't, which in turn brings up great pain or loneliness and a sense of guilt and a feeling of failure. People who are married in a marriage that just doesn't seem to be working. People who are in a job that has become intolerable. People who are out of work and can't seem to find that next position. All of these scenarios are real. They're they're real. And at some point in our life, most of us find ourselves in a circumstance that we know isn't going to change anytime soon. And so how, how do we handle it? How do we cope with it? How do we deal with it? We're also all too aware that life has a way of, of, of like turning and shifting on a dime. We go to bed thinking all is well, and, and the next day we might be fighting for our lives. We don't necessarily expect bad things to happen, but, you know, sometimes they do, and the reality is life is not fair, is it? No, it's not. Sorry, you burst your bubble if you think it is. I don't like being that guy, but I will be if I have to be. Against that backdrop, against that backdrop, I want us to consider the question again that I gave you a few moments ago. What do you do when you don't like when you don't like the circumstances of your life, and it seems like those circumstances aren't going away anytime soon? And there are many answers to that question, but one stands out as being of great importance. When we deal with circumstances that don't seem likely to change anytime soon, if ever, if ever, really, there are many things we might do, but there is one thing that we must do. One thing that we must do. We must go back and find out where God is in the middle of all of our frustration. Where is God in the middle of all of our frustration? And if you're taking notes this morning, I, I encourage you to take out your sermon notes and write this down. Good theology can save us when nothing else will. Good theology can save us when nothing else will help. This principle is essential, and here's why. We know that good theology can save our soul, but in, but in times of trouble, in times of real trouble, if we know the truth and if we remember the truth, what we know and remember can save us from despair. So precisely what kinds of truth are we talking about? Let me give you a short list. God is good. God is faithful. God knows what is best. He is quick to forgive. He will never leave us. He is, his mercy endures forever. He makes no mistakes. God has a purpose. He is working out his plan for us. He still loves us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Jesus is alive today. And someday he will return to earth and restore his creation. Did you get all that written down? No? Oh. I'll go back over it again. No, I'm just kidding. I've learned through the years, um, God is faithful. God is faithful. We're not always faithful to God, but God is faithful. We try to teach that message to our kids as they grow up. And I've shared that message in every church that I've been in ministry in, whether it's been in student ministry, youth ministry, pastoral ministry, and small group ministries, and adult ministries, or whether I've been preaching and teaching in front of, in the big house, you know, or whatever. Every church that I've worked in in ministry, I've tried to share that same message that God is faithful, because that message is good theology. 
And it has the power to save us from despair when hard times come in our life. It literally can save our lives. And with that, we come to our text this morning. If you know anything about Jeremiah 29 at all, you probably know it because one particular verse. It is a verse that has given hope and comfort to many, and it's been, a, it has been sung, it's been memorized, it's been quoted, it's been repeated in prayer, it's often been printed on a coffee mug or posted on a wall so that it won't be forgotten. Do you know the verse I'm referring to? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. However, today's message and this series is not about that promise, as wonderful as it may be. But I mention it because many people know this verse and only this verse. And they know very little about it, and they know very little about its background in Jeremiah 29. However, when we know something about this entire chapter in Jeremiah, we discover some profound insights into how God deals with his people, especially when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances that don't seem likely to change anytime soon. Since that reality applies to all of us some of the time, and to some of us all of the time, we should really take a close look at to what God is saying in these verses. And to do that, we need to have a little background. And so let me paint the picture for you. The year is 597 B.C. Can you see it? Of course not. Nobody can. Nebuchadnezzar has led an army, the army of Babylon, which is, Babylon is modern, like modern Iraq. Okay? The army of Babylon to the gates of Jerusalem. And the Babylonians made quick work of the army of Judah, capturing the city and capturing the wicked king Jehoiakim, who was bound in bronze shackles and taken to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also looted the temple that was built by Solomon, and, and he took articles of silver and gold from the temple and, and, and returned. Jehoiakim was replaced by Jehoiachin, who reigned for only three months. And Nebuchadnezzar had him brought to Babylon, also along with more articles from the temple. Approximately 10,000 people were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in this deportation. And 2 Kings 24 says he took the artisans, the craftsmen, the royal officers, and all the leading men of the land, which left in Jerusalem the poor people, right? All of the wealthy, all of the, the, the elite were taken to Babylon. Meanwhile, a man named Zedekiah became king in Jerusalem. And he was, he was a puppet king, a puppet king, that was put on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar. And he reigned 11 more years until Nebuchadnezzar decided to deal with the Jews once and for all. And so in 588 B.C., he set, a, set up a siege on Jerusalem that lasted for two years while a famine spread through the city, and the city finally fell in 586. And this time, he totally destroyed everything. Nebuchadnezzar tore down the walls of the city. He burned the temple. He burned every other important building in the city, and the city just lay in ruins. It was completely destroyed. He took whatever he wanted, and he destroyed everything else. 
He captured Zedekiah. He killed his sons before his very eyes. And speaking of his eyes, he gouged them out after he killed his sons. And then he marched him in bronze shackles to Babylon. He also took another large group of captives to Babylon with him. And so as you may have guessed, the Babylonians were not nice people, right? They were the most powerful nation on the earth at this time. And their army was ruthless, absolutely ruthless. And after conquering a city, they were known to sometimes pile a huge pile of human skulls in the middle of the square in the city plaza as a warning to anyone not to rebel or revolt against them. There were actually, so there were actually three deportations from Jerusalem to Babylon. The first happened in 605 B.C., and that's when Daniel and his, and his friends, you know, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that was their Babylonian names, but that happened in 605 B.C., and they were deported. The second occurred in 597 B.C., and that's the backdrop of Jeremiah 29, the third and final deportation happened in 586 B.C. when the city was turned into a wasteland. There is one other aspect of the story that we must consider today, and that is the question, why did it happen? Why did it happen? The answer is actually very simple. It happened because the people of Judah turned away from the Lord. If we're taking notes it happened because the people of Judah turned away from the Lord. They ignored God's word. They forgot his promises. They worshiped idols. They took their holy calling lightly. They willingly followed after evil. They took advantage of the poor and the weak. They had trafficked in violence. They acted as if God wasn't paying any attention to them. And that was their ultimate mistake. For generations, the people had turned away from the Lord. To make matters worse, they learned nothing from the sad experience of the northern ten tribes, which is called Israel. Um, they were taken away by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Though it could be argued that the northern tribes went further into adultery, Judah, Judah's sin was actually greater because they saw what happened to Israel, and they forgot God anyway. God sent them prophets who who they ignored and sometimes killed. God gave them good kings, and they followed the good kings. God gave them bad kings, and they followed the bad kings, and they didn't follow God. Finally, the time came, and God just said, enough. Enough's enough. And that's when he raised up Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of judgment against his own people. That pagan king unwittingly served God's purposes by attacking Jerusalem, destroying the temple, ransacking the city, and taking thousands of Jews into captivity. All of that lies behind Jeremiah 29, a pivotal chapter in our quest to understanding how God deals with his people. And we can summarize the background in this way. God called his people to holiness. God called his people to holiness. They ignored his call and went on their own way. God warned them over and over again of the coming judgment, and he sent prophet after prophet, but the people paid no attention. And God raised up Nebuchadnezzar, who attacked Jerusalem and destroyed it. And a great many Jews ended up in Babylon in captivity 
for 70 years. 70 years. Okay, so now it's, it's 597 B.C., and a large number of Jews are in Babylon. And it's impossible for us to fully understand how they felt about what had happened to them. Because to them, Babylon was the center of evil. The center of evil. They hated everything about, that the Babylonians stood for. They hated them for their cruelty. They hated them for their violence. They hated them for their idolatry. They hated them for attacking the city of God. And 11 years later, they would hate them even more for destroying the temple, God's dwelling place on earth. They hated them. The hatred, it went deep. They hated them for, because they were so far from home. And because God had said 70 years, 70 years the Jews were going to be in exile, and that meant that most of them would never see their homeland again. Psalm 137, 1 through 3, adds that they were so miserable in Babylon, so miserable that they hung their harps on a willow tree and refused to sing their songs of Zion. It says this, beside the, beside the river of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees, for our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormer, tormentors insisted on joyful hymns. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. It's like, literally, it's like one of those old Western movies where they're like, dance, boy, dance. And then the guy's like jumping around. Like, that's what it was like. It was humiliating. They had these cap, they were held captive and they were being tortured, humiliated, day and night, forced to perform. These cap, the, this captivity of the Jews, it raises enormous theological questions for us, if you really think about it. Enormous theological questions. Where was God in all of this? How could he let the bad guys take the good guys captive? How could he have allowed the temple in Jerusalem, his earthly dwelling place, to be destroyed? And most of all, how could he have used the Babylonians to punish the Jews when the Babylonians were 10 times, no, no, strike that, 100 times worse than the Jews were? There's a book in the Old Testament that is devoted entirely to those questions. It's called the book of Habakkuk. What do you do when God doesn't seem to come through for us or when he doesn't live up to our expectations? And the answer to that is, is very simple. The real problem is not God not living up to our expectations. It's us not living up to his expectations. The real problem is not God living up to our expectations, it's us not living up to his expectations. And when that happens, judgment is not far away. So let me pause here to mention something that we often have to learn the hard way in our life. The worst wounds are usually self-inflicted. The worst wounds in our life are usually self-inflicted. Rarely will anyone hurt us as badly as we hurt ourselves. There's no pain like the pain of making a stupid mistake or saying something that we shouldn't or hurting those we love the most or breaking their trust, violating our conscience, repeatedly doing wrong, saying I'm sorry and then doing it again, promising to do better and then doing worse, failing to live up to our own standards, 
and disappointing those who depend on us. That's the ragged edge of pain that keeps us awake at night and makes us toss and turn. That's the load of guilt that overwhelms us with sorrow and makes us feel like we've blown everything. I know of no pain greater than the pain of looking at the ruins of what might have been and knowing that we are responsible for the wreckage. And that's exactly how the Jews felt in Babylon. It's precisely how the Jews felt in Babylon. Rejected, humiliated, trapped, judged, condemned, and forgotten. They had become a laughingstock among the nations, just as the prophets had predicted. It is against this agonizing backdrop that we come at last to Jeremiah 29. The only other thing we need to know is that this is a letter. This chapter contains a letter that Jeremiah wrote from Jerusalem to encourage the dejected exiles in Babylon. His letter turns out to be a personal message from God to his people. (laughs) And it's quite an amazing message. It really is. And with that in mind, I want to make just one, one point today, one point for you to remember. God takes responsibility for sending them to Babylon. God takes responsibility for sending them to Babylon. And that is huge. That's big. That's very important. We cannot overstate this importance. This is so important. Everything God is going to say depends on grasping this one central truth. Why were they judged? Because of their sin. Who captured them and took them away? The Babylonians. Who sent the Babylonians? God did. The Babylonians thought they were doing it all by themselves. After all, as pagans, they weren't consciously trying to do God's work. Yet, in Jeremiah 25, 8, God calls Nebuchadnezzar, quote, my servant. God calls Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king of Babylon, my servant. That's mind-blowing. Because at that moment, Nebuchadnezzar didn't even believe in God, the God of the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar worshipped his own gods. But God says, it doesn't matter It doesn't matter that he doesn't believe in me because he is my servant. And look at what God says in Jeremiah 29, 4. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Did you get that? He has sent into exile. God sent them into exile. There's a warning and a ray of hope in these words. God will not be mocked. If we sin, we will be punished. And God will take personal responsibility to do it. He may even use our enemies as his instruments to bring us down. And that's the warning. But God does not forget his children even when we sin. 
God does not forget his children even when we sin. That's the good news. The Jews had been taught from birth that God dwells in the temple in Jerusalem. If you want to find God, they said, go to the temple and worship him there. Now they were hundreds of miles from home in a pagan land separated from their own past, knowing most of them would never return to Jerusalem. And even if they did, the temple would not be there because it was destroyed. And in that despair, God speaks this word of hope. I was with you in Jerusalem. I sent you into exile. I am with you now. God says to his hurting children, I have not left you, not for a moment. I said I would punish you, and I did. But I have not forsaken my own people, and I never will. Strange as it may seem, The Jews ultimately were in Babylon because that's where they needed to be. The rebellion was so deep that they had to be removed from Judea in order for that sin to be broken. Only radical surgery could remove the cancer of idolatry that they had. And we might say that their exile to Babylon, terrible as it seems, was really a severe mercy from God. There was no other way to get their attention. In Jeremiah 24, 6 and 7, God offers a wonderful promise to his dejected children. Hear what he says. He says, I will watch over and care for you, and I will bring them back here again. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them hearts that recognize me as the Lord They will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me wholeheartedly. It's as if God is saying, you think I hate you, but I don't. I have a wonderful plan for you. And that wonderful plan begins in Babylon. It doesn't end there. It didn't seem so wonderful at the moment, but it wasn't. It, was, it is better, and hear this, it's, it is better to be in the will of God in Babylon than to be out of the will of God in Jerusalem. I want to say that again, and I want you to hear this if you hear nothing else. It is better to be in the will of God in Babylon than to be out of the will of God in Jerusalem. And at last, we return to the question that I began with. What do you do when you don't like the circumstances of your life, and it seems as if all of those circumstances aren't going to change anytime soon. The answer is that God doesn't look at our circumstances the same way that you and I do. We don't like where we are, and we wish we were somewhere else doing something else, and we may be in a bad place, in part because of our foolish decisions and our choices. And then God says, you are where you are because I put you there. And that's huge. That's big. And that's the whole point of the story. You are where you are right now because God wants you there. If he wanted you somewhere else, you'd be somewhere else. And even if it is painful, and it's a painful place, It is better to be where you are and to know God than to be anywhere else, to live in luxury and to be without the Lord. I told you earlier that good theology can save you, 
If you're in a Babylon right now, if you're in your own Babylon right now, what you desperately need is good theology. You need a reason to have hope for, for the future. I remind you that God is faithful. God is faithful. Maybe we haven't always been faithful, but God promises to be faithful to us. This is God's word. As soon as your time in Babylon is up, and not a day before, I'll show up and take care of you as I promised and bring you back home. I know what I'm doing, and I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not to abandon you. Plans to give you future and hope. So be encouraged. You are a child of God, and if you feel trapped today, you're not. God wants us to discover that we can worship him, even in Babylon. But that's only the beginning of Jeremiah 29. And next week, we're going to find out so much more. Let's pray. Holy God, through, though we don't always know or understand the whys behind our current situation, we ask that you would continue to make your presence known to us. Give us the peace of heart and mind, the assurance to know and to realize that it is better for us to be with you where we are than to be anywhere else without you. Help us to learn that we need what we need to know in our current situation, to thrive with you so that when the time is right, we can move forward with you by our side. It's in the name of Jesus the Christ, your Son and our Savior, that we pray. And everyone said, Amen.